Father, uh, what a marvelous book uh, the book of Romans is. I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us and teach us uh, from your words. Excuse me tonight. I'm reminded from our lunch today also uh, to pray for my brothers and sisters uh, across the Pacific Ocean and Southeast Asia and all the things they're going through. Would you continue to strengthen them? Would you continue to give them um, perseverance? Would you continue to give them victory? And Father, we pray uh, that an unprecedented, um, unstoppable movement of your church would occur over there. We pray that you do that. We need your help tonight, and so I pray uh, that you would lead us and guide us through your word uh, tonight, please, too. We need that over on this side of the ocean, and so would you do that for us, please? We pray for it and ask for it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are talking about the Old Testament, and we've gotten from... Okay, can you see that? We started in Egypt in the book of Exodus. We saw that God redeemed his people by grace through faith. He took them through the Red Sea to, the, to Mount Sinai where they got the law. The first generation rebelled against him. And so he said, you may wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They die off. The second generation comes up, and Joshua has just led them across the Jordan into the promised land, which was their inheritance, promised before Egypt, promised back in Genesis chapter 12 through the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, land, seed, blessing. Jackie, those are red words. Those, you should highlight those in red. Those will be on the test. Land, seed, and blessing. Okay? They've walked all the way over to here. This is their inheritance. How did they get here? They had to cross the river to get to their inheritance. Joshua led them across, not Moses. This is the history of what's happened. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is going to put the theology behind this picture. This is the history We're going to look at some theology and some application for us. What does it mean for us today to cross the river? In quotes, cross the river. That's what we're doing. That's why we've dropped into Romans chapter 5. Because these people, redeemed, had to go across the Jordan into the promised land to claim their inheritance, to possess it. It had been promised to them to possess it. They had to uh, do certain things. Remember, God provided special corn or grain over on the other side, so they weren't eating the manna anymore. They were eating new food. And he wanted them to live in the promised land, not wander the wilderness anymore. So the application for us is uh, we want to live in the promised land, not in the wilderness. Okay. 
Hopefully this will make more sense by the time we finish. Living in the promised land. We desire to walk with God in newness of life. But instead, much of the time we seem to live beneath our new life rather than according to our new life. We seem to wander around in the spiritually dry and dusty wilderness of self-effort rather than living in the promised land of the abundant life, John 10.10. I don't see anyone nodding out there. I guess you're afraid you're on camera. Uh, I'm nodding to this. We seem to spend much of our time flailing and failing against sin, boxing the air. We get frustrated and feel like giving up. We can feel increasingly separated from God because we feel we're just not measuring up. We know there must be another way. Because if you don't think there's another way, then you say, well, I guess this is as good as the Christian life ever gets. And my next step is heaven. But between now and then, I don't know. I guess this is all there is. And you, you have trouble reconciling that with the New Testament. We know there must be another way. How do we live in the promised land? From the book of Hebrews, remember? We're supposed to move into the promised land. That land, that inheritance that God set aside for us, he wants us to live there. He wanted the Old Testament saints to live there. New Testament saints live in the promised land too. I don't mean physically, I mean metaphorically. But how do we live in the promised land? How do we cross the river? How do we get across? How do we get into the promised land? Instead of wandering around in the wilderness, we got to get across the river and get in the promised land. Uh, let me see. Is there anything else there? No. Those who've crossed the river. Okay, so here's the answer. Those who've crossed the river have settled the answers to three questions and then live in light of those answers. They have settled the answers to three questions and then they live in light of those answers. First question, how does God see me, really? Second, how do I overcome deliberate sin? Third, how do I pursue holiness? Three questions. How does God see me, really? Romans 5. How do I overcome deliberate sin? Six. How do I pursue holiness? Romans 7 and 8. How do I get across the river? I ask, answer, and settle these three questions. You might ask a little bit differently, how do I live with some increasing measure of victory in the promised land? 
How do I increasingly possess the spiritual inheritance God has given me? All of these questions are found, the, the answers are found to these questions in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. So because Joshua paints such a great historical picture, remember in the middle of the river? What's in the middle of the river? The 12 stones that get covered over with the water. And then there's an identical memorial on the promised land side. And I tried to persuade you, and if I haven't, sorry, you need to come my way. That's a picture of our death, burial, and resurrection, and then living in the promised land. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is also a picture of our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ and living in the promised land by the time we get to Romans chapter 8. By the time we finish, you're going to go, oh, okay, I see the historical picture, and now I read from Paul the theology that's undergirding living in the promised land. If you don't get it, trust me, you will. It'll just take a couple weeks. I hope you all get it right now. Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8, great book. Lots to cover. We're only going to cover these four chapters, though. Chapter 5 talks about our justification. The penalty for our sin is paid. He talks about our position now. Christ died for us. And this gives us a new position, new standing, and new privileges. That's what he talks about in Romans chapter 5. Our justification. 6, 7, and 8, he talks about our sanctification. This is where most Christians, we wander the wilderness instead of making progress. That might be true for one or two of you out there. It's been true for me. we got to talk about our sanctification. So where justification is our position, sanctification is our progress. Here the penalty is paid. Here the power is broken. What power? The power of sin. Chapter 6, we died with Christ to sin. We died to sin as a master. We'll talk about that in chapter 6. Chapter 7, we died to the law. So we died to our own self-effort. Chapter 8, we walk in the Spirit and we are transformed by the Spirit. Most Christians get caught right in really right in here but we got to start here we got to start with chapter 5 because chapter 5 is the foundation upon which 6 7 and 8 are built so we're going to talk about chapter 5 tonight and justification the question how does god see me really really when the covers are pulled up at night and you're having trouble sleeping, how does God really see you? That's what Romans 5 is going to answer tonight. How does God see me really? You might even say, well, who cares? I'm in. Uh, here's why you care. Because we behave as we behave, because we believe as we believe. Write it down. We behave as we behave 
Because we believe as we believe. You say, well, Bill, that's a big statement. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We behave as we behave because we believe as we believe. If our beliefs are wrong, our behavior will be wrong. If we believe correctly, our behavior stands a much better chance of walking in step with our beliefs. Does this make sense? We behave as we behave because we believe as we believe. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul, Romans 5, here's the picture from Joshua. He's going to lead us across the Jordan into the promised land. Paul's going to do it with theology. We're going to change our beliefs tonight about how God sees us. Some of you may only, the dial may only tick half. Some of you, because I've done this class quite a few times, some of you, and you'll never tell me, that's okay, some of you are going to do a 180. This lesson is going to rock your world tonight in every positive way, and I pray it does. This is foundational. This is like Christianity 101 right here. And that doesn't mean it's so rudimentary that I've learned it and I've moved on from it. I keep coming back to it again and again and again. It is so fundamental. How does God see me, really? It all boils down to your identity. How does God see me, really? Chapters 1 through 4 of Romans, if you had a chance to read chapter 5, you may have gotten interested and wandered back. In case you didn't, here's Romans 1 through 4. God justifies sinners who believe. That's Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. God justifies sinners who believe. Hallelujah. How does he do that? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. God justifies sinners who believe by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you're a, a, an astute person, right now you're saying, hmm, justifies. I wonder what justification really means. Ba-boom. Justification. A legal declaration by which God declares the guilty sinner righteous by imputing Christ's righteousness to his account. Romans chapter 4 goes on to say, how does he do this? It's by faith, not by works. And he spends eight verses talking about that. It's by grace, not by law. And he spends another eight verses talking about that. And he says, then it's by resurrection power, not human effort. And he's, uh, he manages to get that done in seven verses. How does God do this? By faith, not by works. By grace, not by law. By resurrection power, not human effort. Actually, this, this imputation is the third. There are three great imputations in the Bible. Some of you, you want to get your pens ready. 
First great imputation is the imputation of the sin of Adam to mankind. The sin of, uh, the sin of Adam to the race. And that comes up in the end of chapter 5. So he imputed, God imputed the sin of Adam to the entire race. That's why Romans 5, verse 12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Well, wait a minute. Everyone didn't sin like Adam. God says, yeah, but you died. So I imputed Adam's sin to you, and that's why you died. Even before the law came about, you died. Because the wages of sin is death. The only reason you died is because you sinned. So I've imputed Adam's sin to your race. If you are born of woman, if you are born of mankind, you're born sinful and needy. First great imputation. Second great imputation. The sin of the world to Christ on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be or to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's imputation language. So the second great imputation is the sin of the world to Christ on the cross. That's why Paul in Colossians can say, all of your sins were nailed to the cross. They were done. They're, they're done. They were imputed onto Christ and taken to the grave, buried, and when he rose again, did he come up with your sins? No, he did not. And he didn't come up with mine either. He came up without them. Again, hallelujah. Third great imputation is the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account and to mine, those who believe. Every believer has the righteousness of Christ credited to his account. Not his or her own righteousness, but something infinitely more valuable. The righteousness of Christ imputed to my account by faith, not by works, by grace, not by law, by resurrection power, not by human effort. That's what God has done. He justifies sinners who believe. Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. This is what God is doing. All right. How does God see me, really? Chapter 5. The justified live forever in God's grace. First, first four verses of chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins with what word? When you see a therefore, you're supposed to look back to see what it is there for. Right? Your English teacher would be so proud of you. When you see a therefore, you got to look back a little bit to see what it's there for. What is it there for? What has Paul just been talking about? Justification. What has God done for those who believe? He has justified sinners by faith, through grace, by resurrection power. 
Chapter 5, he keeps moving his argument forward. Chapter 5, the justified live forever in God's grace. First four verses. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith. What does that say again? Past perfect? Since we have been a past action with present results. Since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. Verse 2. Because of our faith... Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege or this grace where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. This verse says a ton, which we're going to unpack in just a minute. Here's what you need to know right now. The justified enjoy a new standing before God. They are at peace with God, verse 1. They constantly live in the land of his grace. Now, in the Greek, the, the, live in this grace in which we now stand, Paul has in mind a sphere. Not, not a, don't imagine a, a three-dimensional sphere, but a, a, a sphere. That's why I described it as a land. It's like a country. You are no longer living in the land you used to live in. You are now living in a new land called grace. God has taken you from your former land and he's brought you to a new land. And the new land is called grace. And where, what's neat about this? Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. And then he goes through some other things which we're going to talk about. They constantly live in the land or the sphere under his dominion where we didn't live before. We're living in a new land called grace. And they live with the hope of glory in spite of difficulties, hardship, or suffering. Those who are justified enjoy a new standing before God. Because they are justified, there is no more threat of punishment. This is the judicial aspect of what's happened. There is no more threat of punishment. You have been reconciled. We are now at peace with God. We are now friends with God. There is no more hostility or anger from God to us. This is the relational side of what's happened. Why is there no more hostility or anger? What is God hostile or angry about? Sin. What did he do with sin? He put it on Jesus. And what did he have done to it? What did he have done to Jesus? The wages of sin is death. Jesus dies. Jesus has paid the price to set us free. And your sins and mine were on his back 
bringing about his death. Jesus said, I will get up there instead of you, Bill. Penalty paid. God takes me from one land and he plops me into another land because of the finished work of Jesus. I am now justified. There is no more hostility or anger toward me from God because the sin issue has been dealt with. Partially or fully? Fully, finally, forever. I no longer live where I used to live. I now live in a new land called grace. The justified enjoy a new standing before God. They are fully accepted and lack nothing. We enjoy a new standing. Oh, let me see. Do I have one other thing? No. They enjoy a new standing, and then they enjoy a new security. And that's basically verse 5 through the end of the chapter. We enjoy a new security. Why? Because of God's love for us as seen through Christ. How do we see God's love? Now, some might die for somebody good. You know, somebody might do that. But how does God demonstrate his love for us? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is love. Can you pick out, can you imagine a person in your mind, now you're a Christian so you don't hate anyone, but there's someone that you probably really, really dislike. <laughs> and let's even pretend that that person has harmed you and wronged you in unbelievable ways. God says, here's the choice, Bill. That person can die because I know what they did to you. Or you can die for them. Jesus says, Daddy, let it be on me. I love the world. And I love Bill. Even though he is a sinner. I love him. And I will give my life in exchange for his. That's what your Jesus has done for you. I know you know that, but if you tire of that story, something's wrong. <laughs> God's love is an amazing, amazing thing. They enjoy a new security in God because of God's love for them as seen through Christ. Because of God's work for them as seen through Christ. Because of Christ's accomplishments for his own Bottom line of the second half of Romans 5, it's easier to keep a friend than save an enemy. How did God get us to himself? He had to save an enemy. The enemy is now a friend. It's easier to keep a friend than to save an enemy. If I'll go to this length to save an enemy, keeping a friend is no big deal. <laughs> That's Romans 5. Here's how far I went to save an enemy. Well, I got you right now. No sweat. Let me illustrate another way. Uh, imagine there's a prisoner who's been set free and called to the courtroom. Uh, 
the uh, prosecuting attorney um, goes up to the bench and the charges are read against this prisoner and the judge says, you know, guilty or innocent? And the prosecuting attorney says, guilty. However, in his own blood, he writes the word pardoned. He gives that to the judge. The judge wraps the gavel and says, not guilty. Takes him behind a room, behind the bench, which is the judge's home. And as soon as the prisoner, who has now been freed, goes into the judge's room, the door closes and there's no more door. And the judge takes off his robe and says, Welcome home, son. I'm your father. Settle in. I got an amazing life ahead for you. I love you. There's no way back to the courtroom because it's been dealt with fully, finally, forever, legally, judicially, if you want to use that word, relationally, it is taken care of, and daddy is the judge, and daddy knows the case has been dismissed because his son has paid the penalty in full. And he looks at you and says, Bill, it's easier to keep a friend than to save an enemy. You're in the family now. I gotcha. The justified live forever in God's grace. They enjoy a new standing before God. They enjoy a new security in God. How does God see me really? Here's the idea of lands. The sphere in which you were and now you are. Before you are in the land of works. You were a sinner. Condemned. Under punishment for sins. Separated from God. Unclean. Remember that from our Old Testament stuff, right? So far, unclean. Ooh, didn't want to be unclean. You're unclean. Your eternal destiny from your perspective is uncertain. Now, from God's perspective, it's very certain. But from your perspective, because you look horizontally, not vertically, you're still hoping that once your case is finally heard at the bar, God will find in your favor. Because you've frankly been pretty good. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering must be God's punishment. How many times this past week... This past week, did you hear someone say or hint, somebody up there is looking out for me? The big man was smiling on me this week. 
You hear anything like this just this past week? Man, this is how I looked at things before, and so did you. If I got into difficulties, hardships, and suffering, ugh, what do I attribute it to? God's whacking me. I knew I should have started going to church. I knew I should have given 20 bucks to that person on the corner. I knew I should have been kinder to my neighbor. Boy, he sure taught me a lesson. Whew. You hear these things every week from other people around you, don't you? They come in little bit different words and packages. But this is the idea that the people who are outside of Christ have about God. And so do you, and so do I. How does God see me? This is how I was before. He says in verse 2, chapter 5, verse 2, Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. What is that new place? So I want you to imagine this land, this land is, it's 10,000 miles in every direction. And this wall is 1,000 miles high. There's no way you can get a ladder and climb over. On this side, it's 10,000 miles in every direction, but there's still this 1,000-mile-high wall that separates this group from this group. This sphere from this sphere. Verse 2 because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. We no longer stand here. We stand over here. This is where God has moved the justified. He moves them to a new land. They move to a new sphere, a new domain called grace. What's true of these people? Sinners are now saints and sons are daughters. They are declared innocent and free forever by justification. Not by works, by justification. They are reconciled to God. They're no longer unclean, they're righteous. Their eternal destiny is not uncertain, it is secure in Christ, and difficulties, hardships, and suffering are God's tools to transform. That's why he goes on and says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they can help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. He, goes, he talks about the different perspective you have on the other side, on this side of the wall. Here's where we were. When we trusted Christ, he justified us, and he put us in this grace in which we now stand is a new country. It's a new domain. It's a new land from the one you used to live in. Okay. The land on your, so this is the land of your first birth, and this is the land of your second birth. 
First birth, second birth, two different lands. How does God see me, really, with a new position, as justified through Christ's finished work? We live forever in God's grace. We have a new relationship, a new relationship with God based on his grace, not based on our performance. We have a new standing before God. We have a new security in God. We are men and women made new and kept new by him. That is Romans chapter 5. How does God see you? How does he see me, really? You have a new position and a new relationship. Your old address doesn't get mail anymore. You have a new address in a new land, and it's the town of grace. We are men and women made new and kept new by him. At the risk of being very blunt, the truth is God has never loved you and set his affection on you because of who you are or because of what you've done. He's always loved you and set his affection on you in spite of who you are and in spite of what you've done for him. So great is his love for us. What are we to him when we're running around on the left-hand side? People he might long to be kind to, but he can't. Why? Because the sin issue still stands between us. You believe in Jesus Christ. He moves you to the right-hand side. He takes you into the family room, and he says, welcome. I got a great life planned for you. I got a great inheritance to give you. We are men and women made new and kept new by him. And you say, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. So let me tell you, or for some of you, remind you, uh, the last time, well, not the last time, Anyway, a few years ago when um, we went to Ethiopia and I was teaching on these passages, I was actually teaching on Romans 5, and there was a fellow sitting out there about right over there. And um, he had on a red shirt. And I'd be teaching along, you have to teach through a translator. You know, so I would say a sentence in English and then he would repeat it in his language and I would say another sentence and he would repeat it. And we went on like this. And this guy sitting out there, I began to think maybe he was not quite all there. I couldn't imagine why he would be invited because he, I would say one or two sentences, they'd be translated, and this fellow would, oh, yeah. and it really got to be kind of distracting. <laughs> Teaching through a translator is kind of hard anyway, and here's this guy, I, it's like an hour before lunch, and I just I teach to lunch, and I'm I'm just kind of hit my limit. <laughs> and 
And so I asked Lemma, our host, I said, Lemma, I hate to ask you this, um, but tell me about that guy in the red shirt. I mean, can, can we make him leave? Because I'm really, he's really distracting to me. And Lemma says, may I tell you his story? And I thought, okay, sure, why not, try it. He says, well, he grew up in a faith system that is, of course, not Christian. He's Muslim. And his father is the imam in the town. And the entire town is Muslim and very um, devout. And he used to go kill Christians in order to please, you know, whatever. And after, I guess, a number of killings, um, he is saved by the Lord Jesus. And he cannot believe that there is a God who knows what he's done and who he is and has welcomed him still into the family and would treat him with grace and say, son, welcome home. I've got a great plan for your life and a wonderful inheritance. And he said, what you didn't know is he's singing in our native language. He's singing praises to God as you're teaching through this material. Because he's never heard this material. But he's going, oh, this is daddy. This is my daddy. So I felt about that tall. And of course, he uh, stayed. In fact, he should have taught the class. How does God see me? Really? Don't you connect to the guy in the red shirt? And you're like, oh, Lord, thank you for not making me that guy. Because I'm lovable compared to him. Stop. I know some of you. I know what you were thinking. Oh, praise God, I'm not a Pharisee or tax collector. You know what? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Can you, do you ever catch yourself thinking that? Lord, thank you that I am not the man in the red shirt. What grace, what amazing love you demonstrated to him. Uh, unbelievable. But subtly, there's something back there saying, but that's not me. I'm a little bit better than that guy. How does God see me, really? He sees every person in him who has been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They have a new position. They stand justified through Christ's finished work. And they live forever in his grace. They have a new relationship with the Father. 
based on his grace, not based on our performance. That's what Romans 5 is trying to communicate or remind us of. As a result, in the promised land, there's freedom from spiritual bookkeeping. I'm going to meddle for a few minutes here. One of the most pervasive, persistent, discouraging, and defeating enemies we bring with us into the promised land is spiritual performance or spiritual bookkeeping. Do you know what I'm talking about? And anyone who does this, I don't believe you. (laughs) Everyone nod your head like this, spiritual bookkeeping. I got where this is going and I don't like it. Honey, lock the doors. (laughs) In the promised land, there is freedom from spiritual bookkeeping. The sword you're going to use to fight it is called justification. That's why we start at Romans 5. The sword you are going to use to fight this enemy is the sword of justification. You know what a bookkeeper does, right? They got pluses and minuses. And so if you're talking financially, if you're a bookkeeper and you know, you're, you're balancing the books, I guess it's best if the books balance. But if you had to make a mistake, it'd be better if it's positive, right? More positive than negative, right? That means you're, you're doing better. Spiritually speaking, how many of you think in a day, I hope I have more positives than negatives at the end of the day? Anybody ever think that? Don't raise your hands. More positives than negatives. You know what that is? Spiritual bookkeeping. When you and I lived in Egypt... And this, we inherited this from Adam, so we, in a sense, we can't be blamed. We're just doing what comes natural. When we lived in Egypt, in spiritual Egypt, we thought, if I do this, then this will be the result. If I behave rightly, then I'll be accepted and loved. And the bookkeeping mindset assumes everything is given or taken on a conditional basis. This is the mindset I had in Egypt Guess what I brought with me to the new land? This. Some traditions right now, they'd be going, amen, and they'd be, you know, doing some, it'd be great. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) The grace mindset in the promised land says, since this is true, then that is the result. Since I am accepted and loved, then I can behave in a way that reflects those truths. Do you see the difference? If not, keep staring at the page. Try to focus beyond it and maybe it'll come, become clearer. If I do this, then this will be the result. Versus, since this is true, then I can behave this way. 
There's a bookkeeping mindset and a grace mindset. This is the one we bring with us into the new land. Let's see. Uh, I want to go on. So let me use the two lands again to illustrate these two different mindsets. When you lived in Egypt, you thought you were a relative sinner. I've never met a, a person living in Egypt, spiritual Egypt, who thinks he's the worst sinner ever. Right? Well, if I am, I'm not a bad one. In fact, I'm probably better than about 98% of those guys. <laughs> right? So I'm a relative sinner. I'm not like, those really bad guys. But I'm this pretty good sinner if I got to be a sinner at all. I'm, not, I'm probably pretty good. I'm a lot better than my neighbors, that's for sure. But God's acceptance is conditional. Right? I got to have more pluses than minuses. I live under the dew of ceaseless works. I live under self-effort. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering must be God's punishment. So my answer, my, my go-to, is so I have to try harder. And I've talked about this before. Some of you, when you take communion, Lord, I wasn't very good this past week or past month. Oh, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'll try much harder this next month. Oh, really? That's not what communion is about. But isn't that where we go? I'll do better. I'll do better, Lord. I'm so sorry. I didn't do these things again. Why are you staring at me? I'm telling you, this is what you're thinking when you're in the pew and you have to stop it. Try harder. The promised land, you are now a saint and a son or daughter. God's acceptance is full, complete, and forever. You live under the done, not the due of works, but the done of grace. It is done through the Holy Spirit, not through your self-effort. Difficulties, hardships, and suffering are God's tools to transform you, and you are empowered by the Spirit, not trying harder. What difference would the promised land mindset make to your daily walk with Christ? Well, first think, where does the bookkeeping mentality get you? Shame, defeat, fear, hiding, independence from God. That's where bookkeeping gets you. I've done this illustration before, but I think it's a marvelous one, so I'm going to tell it again. Imagine there is a giant pile of sins in front of you. They're your sins. We each have a pile. And on the other side of the pile is Jesus. And if you have the bookkeeping mindset, here's what you imagine. Jesus is standing on the other side of the pile. Bill, my goodness, how'd you let so many pile up? <laughs> Why don't you take care of these when there was just a little pile? I'm kind of disappointed in you. He's tapping his foot, right? He's tapping his foot. 
because he's waiting for me to do something. Well, there's a shovel in the pile of sins. So what do I do? I grab the shovel, (laughs) and I start going after the pile. Problem is, every time I put the shovel in, nothing comes, nothing stays on the shovel. It's like I'm shoveling in the wind. (laughs) And what do I imagine? The foot tapping from Jesus gets a little louder. And the arms get a little more crossed. And he's like, what are you doing, Bill? Don't you want to draw close to me? I want you to draw close to me. Come on. Dig faster. Dig harder. Anybody ever think this besides me? Oh, you such Christians. Here's what Jesus does from Romans 5. He walks around to the other side of the pile. He holds the shovel and he says, Bill, I didn't make you to be able to shovel this pile of sins. Let me help you. And he puts the shovel in and a big scoop in the fire. He does it again and off they go. You see, you and I, even as Christians, do not have the power to overcome or defeat sin. That is the spiritual bookkeeping mindset. I've got to use self-effort to get rid of these sins. It's impossible. And yet, we continue to flail and box the air and shovel and get nothing because we're convinced from Adam that this is the way to get rid of the sins in our lives, right? And so how do you go to bed at night? Seriously, how do you go to bed at night? Well, I just choose to, like Scarlett O'Hara, I I don't want to think about that. I'm just not going to think about that. I don't know what to do with that. I can't make any progress. I can't make any headway. I guess this is all there is in the Christian life. Uh, It's the best it gets for me on this side. When I get to heaven, I guess it gets better. But right now, I give up. I don't know what to do. Anybody ever think that? Potential signs of spiritual bookkeeping. Do I always need to look like I have it all together? Do I ever choose not to speak the truth and love to someone because of what he or she or others might think of me afterward? Do I spend lots of time trying to please people? Do I ever feel God is withholding some good thing from me until I perform better? Do I avoid addressing sin for fear of whacking? Who's going to whack me? God. Is it hard for you to say, I praise the Lord, the boundary lines like David, the boundary lines for me have fallen in pleasant places. What do we think happens once we say that? The other shoe drops. Oh, you think the boundary lines are good right now, Bill? How's that for you? How do you like life now? Well, I don't know. Some of you are looking down right now. (laughs) This is what we think. We think there's spiritual bookkeeping going on here, and we revert, we start thinking like Adam. 
instead of thinking like Jesus. How do I feel about myself when I hear whispers from the enemy about my past shortcomings or even failures? Can I celebrate another, particularly Christian, Christians win, W-I-N, without jealousy? Can I be happy when someone else succeeds? What if they succeed and it wasn't me? In other words, if we were competing, what if they win and I lose? Can I be joyful about that? Does my spiritual temperature rise or fall depending on the amount of affirmation I get? That can be a symptom of spiritual bookkeeping. Do I feel unworthy of God's love? Bookkeeping keeps me in the wilderness. It's characteristic of the wilderness. It is not at all characteristic of the promised land. God cannot love us more than he already loves us, nor can he love us less. He has never loved you or me because of who we are or because of what we've done. He loves us in spite of who we are and in spite of what we've done. His love is unconditional and absolutely loyal, as Cody talked about today. His love for us is constant, consistent, and loyal. It never wavers, falters, stumbles, anything. The Lord loves you and he loves me. Why? Ah, that's a great question. But he does. But bookkeeping will keep me in the wilderness and not Allow me to cross the Jordan and live in the promised land. What do we need to do? We've got to cross the river. According to Romans 5, God has brought us into a position we didn't deserve, given us a standing of full acceptance we couldn't have earned, joined us into a relationship with himself we couldn't have started, and ensured that we'll be kept secure no matter what. Remember, Romans 8, 1. We're not there yet, but you know it. There is therefore no condemnation. Who's Paul writing that to? Christians. That he's just talked about in Romans 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. There is therefore, what is it therefore? At the end of his seventh chapter, he goes, now remember... There's no condemnation. God's justification of you and of me has changed everything. You can no longer live as you used to live. You have to live in a new way. How are we going to live in the promised land where there is no uncertainty, no fear, no hiding from the light? God will never shame me or humiliate me. No scolding will come from his mouth. No punishment will come from his hand. He's never disappointed in me. Some of you need to underline that and highlight that. You're an achiever. 
You're a performance-based person. Takes one to know one. I'm an achiever. I am a performance-based person. God is not disappointed in me. I may be disappointed in myself. What do I do? I project that onto God. It's not fair. It's not right. God is not disappointed in me. He never rejects me. I'm fully accepted. I'm secure, and I have his help. He hasn't and won't withhold one good thing from me ever. If he hasn't given it to me, it's because it isn't best for me. Can I trust him with that? Or will I instead pout and complain? I am justified. I am no longer who I was. I no longer live at the same address. And I can no longer live the same life I used to live. Everything is different in the land of grace. How does God see me, really? As one he's justified. It begins in the mind. We are free from having to perform for God or for others. Accept it, count on it, stand on it, rest in it, begin every day with this truth. If this is new information to you, begin every day with this truth. If this is old information to you, begin every day with this truth. See what I did there? But I went too fast. If this is new to you, begin every day with this truth. If this is old to you, begin every day with this truth. Wow, I said it twice. It still wasn't funny. Okay, I can accept that. How does God see me? Really, how do I settle this question? Justification. I am a justified one. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I am justified. We walk according to this truth in faith. Let me finish with this wonderful little story. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I commend it to you. The hero in the story is named Christian. Christian meets Apollyon, who is a demon. Christian is on a journey from a person who's outside of Christ to a person who meets Christ, comes to the cross, and then takes a journey to the celestial city. Okay, so Christian right now is in the Valley of Humiliation. Now, you have to follow the language here just a little bit. Uh, but now, in this Valley of Humiliation, poor Christian was hard put to it. For he had gone but a little way before he espied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name is Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back to him might give him the greater advantage with ease to pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground for, thought he, 
Had I no more in mine eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. So he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they are his pride. He had wings like a dragon and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke. His mouth was as the mouth of a lion. When he came up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance and thus began to question with him. And so he starts asking him some questions. Apollyon, in this discussion, uh, begins accusing Christian. And he says, first, uh, Apollyon says to him, Thou hast already been unfaithful in thy service to thy master. And how dost thou think to receive wages of him? What? Wages. Bookkeeping. Wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him, says Christian. Apollyon then begins to rehearse Christian's sins. Thou didst faint at first setting out when thou was almost choked in the slew of despond. And he goes through all these, all these sins. Listen to Christian's response. This is the response of justification. There's a whole paragraph where Apollyon just goes after him on all the sins he's done in his life. Christian, all this is true and much more which thou hast left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides these infirmities possessed me in thy country, for there I sucked them in and I have groaned unto them, been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon of my prince. Apollyon in a grievous rage, I am an enemy to this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I am come out on purpose to withstand thee. Christian says, Apollyon, beware what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled quite over the whole breadth of the way. I am void of fear in this matter, said Apollyon. Prepare thyself to die, for I swear by my infernal den that thou shalt go no farther. Here I will spill thy soul. They fight. Apollyon espising his opportunity, began to gather up close to Christian and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. And with that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of thee now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was fetching of his last blow, thereby to make a full end of this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword and caught it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. Micah 7, 8. With that he gave him a deadly thrust, which made him give back as one that had received his mortal wound. Christian, perceiving that, made at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, 37. And with that, Apollyon spread forth his dragon's wings and sped away that Christian saw him no more. How are we to fight? 
temptation. What's the sword? Justification. Where do I learn about justification? From the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible memory program, begin one. Romans 5, 1 and 2 would be great verses to add into your arsenal. Because when that temptation comes, you've got to fight back with justification. I am no longer who I was. I no longer live where I used to live. I'm no longer the same person. I live in a new land and I have a new master. He says so. And I will fight. And I'll fight with the word of God. Because it's the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God that will wield the power, not you. Tonight's lesson is on justification. You have to stand and fight the enemy. And you must fight the enemy with the sword of justification in the word of God and allow the spirit of God to work through the word of God to attack the enemy that you cannot defeat. I hope this makes sense to you. Let me pray uh, for us. Oh, next time, June 2nd, read Romans 6. Let me pray for us. Father, the truths in here are amazing and we all grasp them at some level. I pray that over these next few weeks, you would continue to press home these truths into our minds, into our hearts, into our spirits, that they would be uh, things that we absolutely stand on as truth. And that when we're tempted, when we're accused, whether that's by a real person or by um, crazy stuff in our mind, uh, help us stand on the truth of our justification, that we have a new position and a new relationship with you because of the finished work of Jesus. You are no longer counting our sins against us. That's already been done. The only thing you count toward us is the righteousness of your son. Thank you. We certainly don't deserve to live in this land of grace that you have placed us in, but we delight in being here. And would we be found as men and women who continue to live like your son our Lord, our King, our Savior, Jesus. We pray for this all, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.